Psalm 49, to the chief musician, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Hear this, all peoples, give ear, all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. My mouth shall speak wisdom, and the meditation of my heart shall give understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will disclose my dark saying on the harp. Why should I fear in the days of evil, when the iniquity at my heels surrounds me? Those who trust in their wealth and boast in the multitude of their riches, none of them can by any, by any mean redeem his brother, nor give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of their souls is costly, and it shall cease forever, that he should continue to live eternally and not see the pit. For he sees wise men die, likewise the fool and the senseless person perish, and leave their wealth to others. Their inner thought is that their houses will last forever, their dwelling places to all generations. They call their lands after their own names. Nevertheless, man, though in honor, does not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. This is the way of those who are foolish and of the posterity, those who approve their sayings. Selah. Like sheep, they are laid in the grave. Death shall feed on them. They shall have dominion over them in the morning, and their beauty shall be consumed in the grave far from their dwelling. But God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave, for he shall receive me. Selah. Do not be afraid when one becomes rich, when the glory of his house is increased. For when he dies, he shall carry nothing away. His glory shall not descend after him, though while he lives, he blesses himself. For men will praise you when you do well for yourself. He shall go to the generation of his fathers. They shall never see light. A man who is in honor yet does not understand is like the beasts that perish. Our uh, sermon today is Exodus 12. It's verses 29 through 36, and it is entitled The Plague on the Firstborn. Verse 29, And it came to pass at midnight that the Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of livestock. So Pharaoh rose in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where there was not one dead. Then he called for Moses and Aaron by night and said, Rise, go out from among my people, both you and the children of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Also take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. And the Egyptians urged the people that they might send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, having their kneading bowls bound up in their clothes on their shoulders. Now the children of Israel had done according to the word of Moses, and they had asked from the Egyptians articles of silver, articles of gold and clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they granted them what they requested. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. It ended right there. I almost started reading, reading on. Sorry about that. For the second and last time in Exodus, the kneading bowls of the people will be mentioned. The first time was during the plague of frogs, which filled the kneading bowls of the Egyptians. This time it will be contrasted with the kneading bowls of the Israelites, which will be filled with dough and then wrapped in cloth to keep out contamination. The only other time these kneading bowls are mentioned in the Bible is in the book of Deuteronomy, once in Israel's expected blessings for obedience and once in their expected curses for disobedience. A kneading bowl is something personal to the household. 
It is where the bread is made. The bread is prepared and it is brought to the table. The table is where the meal is. And the meal is where life's most tender moments with family and friends often occur. We can think of our kitchen today as the kneading bowl of yesterday. We keep it clean and we prepare our meals on it. Nobody would consider eating food that was prepared on a counter filled with roaches or mold. Well, maybe roaches. Well, no, probably not. We take good care of where we prepare our meals because we want to stay healthy and because we want to eat food which tastes good and which doesn't have bugs in it. When we go into a house which is not clean in this way, we will find any excuse for not eating what is offered. But in considering this, do we make as much effort in our spiritual house? Is our spiritual bread prepared without contamination? How carefully we tend to our physical food but how carelessly we often tend to our spiritual food. Do we take time to read God's word? And if we do, do we simply read it in order to say we read it? Or do we savor it as a meal of the purest sort? And in what other areas do we neglect to live spiritually pure in a spiritually pure manner? Do we eat the bread of immoral images? Do we consume greed or envy over possessions? Do we drink up bitterness by the mugful? What is it in our lives that we can correct in our spiritual meal? Adherence to the word carries great benefit. Failing to adhere to it carries great consequences. Israel as a nation found this out, and each individual will find it out as well. Some are blessed and realize it in this life. Others won't find out until it's too late. Let's be sure that our kneading bowls are filled with unleavened bread as we walk in this life that we have been granted. Our text verse comes from Deuteronomy 28. It is the 17th verse. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. A cursed kneading bowl is a kneading bowl that is defiled and unsuitable for use. It also could be an empty kneading bowl that leaves one staring at it, wondering when their next meal will come. Either way, it's useless to be used for what it was designed. The kneading bowls of Pharaoh and Egypt were defiled, but they failed to pay heed. Now, eight plagues later, they will suffer the greatest plague for having not learned the lessons of the past. It will be such a terrible thing that they will urge Israel to leave. Let us learn the lesson of the kneading bowl and keep ours clean and undefiled. Let us keep our lives holy and our doctrine pure. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Let us partake only of the true bread, the pure and unleavened bread of Christ, which is revealed in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I have three thoughts for you today. The first is go, serve the Lord as you have said. It's verses 29 and 30. Verse 29, and it came to pass at midnight. Nine plagues have come upon Egypt. Nine times they have been afflicted by the hand of the Lord. The land has been ruined and death has been seen. And with the distinction being made between the Egyptians and the Israelites, the plagues would have been all the more wondrous. Several times Pharaoh seemed ready to relent and release captive Israel, even speaking aloud that it would happen. But because of his stubborn heart, he always found a reason to back off from actually following through with his words. His heart was hard and it only grew harder through the carefully timed wonders which the Lord sent into the land. Now, for several days, there has been darkness in the land. The people would have been beside themselves as they sat in their houses, not being able to tell even if it was day or night. Here at midnight on the 15th of the month of Aviv, 
the worst terror of all would come upon the people of Egypt. Being the 15th of the month, it would be a full moon, which is the most propitious time of all for Israel to go out at the Exodus. They would have the moon to illuminate the land as they picked up their belongings and headed out of Egypt. But for the Egyptians, midnight would make the plague all the more horrifying. The people would have slept, waking to hear the sounds of death consuming their loved ones. Their minds would have been dull and the darkness would only make the calamity more terrible. Would the death strike others? Might it even, might it even strike me? And Pharaoh would have the overwhelming horror that he had been told in advance that this plague was coming. In their final meeting, Moses told him that midnight was the hour for it to occur. Whether he believed it possible or not, then he now realized the truth of the statement. Death had come at midnight. Verse 29 going on, that the Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. Unlike all of the other plagues which could possibly be seen as natural, this one cannot. The death of the firstborn only is unique, and it cannot be ascribed to anything except a targeted attack. There is a purposeful, willful intent behind the action. Nature does not act in such a way ever. No amount of speculation concerning what type of natural phenomena will ever adequately resolve what occurs here. Attempts to find them have only proven the ones so speculating to be foolish. The attack will come against all the people, in all living conditions, and even against the animals. But more than that, those with the blood applied, even if in the exact same neighborhood, will be spared. The impossibility of this being a natural event is assured. Let us accept the narrative at face value and not attempt to undermine the magnificence of what occurred on that sacred night in the land of Egypt. Be advised, though, that there are so-called scholars who would so attempt to weaken the account. The liberal scholars at Cambridge University state, as they often do, that the text has been manipulated. Here are their words. This particular form of the tradition eventually first arose partly through the influence of the Israelite spring offering of the Passover, partly through that of the Israelite custom of dedicating the firstborn, which together, so they've taken two traditions of Israel and they've made up a lie in the Bible, which together brought into the tradition the sparing of the houses and firstborn of the Israelites and transformed the Egyptians who perished in the plague into firstborn. May they be appropriately judged for their lack of faith in the surety and truthfulness of God's holy and superior word. And yet, as straightforward as these words appear, there is some room for argumentation. Concerning those targeted, they have been interpreted in a multitude of ways. Is this speaking only of the firstborn son or the firstborn who opens the womb, regardless as to whether it's a male or a female? Does it mean all of the firstborn in a house? Because if so, it could mean the grandfather who is the firstborn of his mother, the father who is the firstborn of his mother, and so on. If it includes women, then it could include an aunt or a mother. Some scholars say that the word firstborn, which is bechor, implies a male only, and other scholars disagree. Some even argue that the word, which can mean chief or most, can be speaking in a superlative sense, such as the most favored. In other words, the favored son is the one that dies. Little agreement is found among scholars with such diverse opinions. However, the narrative itself, as well as the pictures found all the way throughout the Bible, gives us the proper answer. Exodus 1, verse 16, details Pharaoh's words, which said this, When you do the duties of a midwife for the Hebrew women, 
and see them on the birthstools. If it is a son, then you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. A few verses later, in verse 22, Pharaoh gave another command. He said, so Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, every son who is born, you shall cast into the river, and every daughter you shall save alive. Pharaoh had ordered the killing of Israel's sons, and the Lord would now slay the firstborn sons of his land. And as a certainty of this, in Exodus 4, verse 22, we read these words. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. But if you refuse to let him go, indeed, I will kill your son, your firstborn. In these verses, the word ben, or son, is used in conjunction with the word bechor, or firstborn. This was targeted then only at the males. Whether it means males of all generations or only those of the youngest generation is not specified. But if Pharaoh were a firstborn, then we would know that it means only the youngest because Pharaoh did not die. If not, then we cannot know. No matter what, because of their treatment of God's firstborn son called the Israelites, they would now be so treated. As Jameson Fawcett Brown says, they were made in the justice of God to feel something of what they had made his people feel. Concerning throwing the children into the Nile all those years later, he's giving them just retribution. Verse 29 going on, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne, the highest seat in the land was not exempt from the punishment of the plague. And in fact, he was the most deserving of it, having sat in the royal seat, overseeing the unjust laws and crimes committed against the people of the Lord. He had been given his warning before the first plague that this day would come if he refused to heed it. With each subsequent plague, the day of this judgment drew nearer, and yet he continued to stubbornly refuse to pay heed to the words that he had and the marvels that he beheld. Verse 29 continues, to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, Curiously, these words here do not read the same as the warnings given in Exodus uh, chapter 11. There it said this, And all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the female servant who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the animals. Now, you see there's a difference. Behind the handmill, and then you have the captive in the dungeon. And there's a possible reason for the change which can be answered by the fact that elsewhere in the Bible, captives worked at a grinder while in prison. This is seen in Samson, who was taken captive by the Philistines. In Judges chapter 16, it says this, Then the Philistines took him and put out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza. They bound him with bronze fetters, and he became a grinder in prison. However, this doesn't explain why the change was made only a possible explanation for it. And so I would suggest that this change is to point us to the work of Jesus Christ. In Exodus 11, verse 5, it says, the firstborn of the female servant who is behind the handmill. Grammatically, this could be saying that the firstborn is behind the handmill or that the female servant is behind the handmill. In the Hebrew, it's ambiguous. However, I called my friend Sergio about this, and he notes context-wise, it continues a sentence where the first part, it uses the exact same language and reference, which is the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sits on his throne, to the firstborn of the maidservant, who is behind the handmill. He goes on to say that I understand that Pharaoh was the one who sits on the throne, not his firstborn. Only when Pharaoh dies, then his firstborn takes the throne. In the Exodus, we have to remember that the lamb was sacrificed in place of the firstborn. 
I don't think it would be stretching it to say that Christ died for all people, and this is reflected in him in the words of Exodus 11, because he truly was the firstborn behind the stone, meaning his grave, represented by the millstones. And yet, at the same time, he is the firstborn of the female servant. Mary called herself the maidservant of the Lord in Luke chapter 1, she being the mother of the Lord. Thus, the ambiguity of the wording, he fills both roles. In Exodus 12, he was the firstborn of the captive in the dungeon, meaning the firstborn of fallen man. And yet he was the firstborn in the dungeon, meaning the grave. The same word for dungeon here, habor, was used in Genesis where it was called the pit. And if you remember those sermons, it was clearly a picture of Jesus Christ in his death. Finally, the continuity of the ability to mean both things extends to the phrase from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne. In the Joseph sermons, we saw that Pharaoh, which means great house, pictured God on his throne. And so the ambiguity in the wording can be applied here also. It can read either Pharaoh who sat on his throne or the firstborn who sat on his throne. Jesus sat on the throne of heaven, but he condescended to come to earth where he died as the firstborn son of God. This is seen in Colossians chapter 1. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven, that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things consist and he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. He is also the firstborn who sat on his throne, as is spoken of numerous times in the New Testament. One which fits this perfectly is found in Hebrews chapter 1. But to the Son, he says, your throne, O God, speaking of the Son, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. I do believe that this evaluation is correct. It is showing us that there has been an exchange made. The firstborn of God, the firstborn of the maidservant, and the firstborn of the captive are all picturing the Lord and his wondrous work for the people of the world. Because of what he has done, we may now join him as the firstborn registered in heaven, as the author of Hebrews tells us. But you, meaning you, saved people, have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn, who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect. God did not cause the people of the world to suffer unjustly, and there is nothing that has happened to us that he was not willing to endure himself in order for us to enter into that exalted position with him in heaven. Verse 29 continues, and all the firstborn of the livestock. The word here should be translated as Young's literal translation states it, and every firstborn of beasts. The word is behema, which means any beast, whether livestock, a family dog or cat, the camel at the hitching post, or any other beast in the land. And there's a reason for this particular judgment. Due to Egypt's animal worship, the Lord was showing that all animals were under his authority, even those which had not yet been named in any judgment. If they had made an idol, say, of Rover, he would now be shown as a false god. If they had made an idol of Fifi the cat, it would now be proven false as well. The Lord created and the Lord has judged. 
Verse 30. So Pharaoh rose in the night, he, all his servants, and all the Egyptians. Whether it was the sound of death which awakened the living, or whether it was the sounds of the living who knew that the death had awakened all the others, everyone in Egypt was aroused from their sleep because of what had transpired. Only the deaf would lay in a peaceful slumber unless they too were awakened to mourn their own dead. Egypt has been crushed before, but never had it received such a punishing blow which reached to the very heart of all of the people. Verse 30 going on, and there was a great cry in Egypt. Pharaoh was warned of exactly this in chapter 11 with these words, then there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as was not like it before, nor shall be like it again. Ancient travelers of the past have recorded the habits of the Egyptians when death came near to them. Compiling several scholars' notes on this, Adam Clark gives the following summary for us to consider. No people in the universe were more remarkable for their mournings than the Egyptians, especially in matters of religion. They weeped, whipped, beat, tore themselves, and howled in all the excess of grief. When a relative died, the people left the house, ran into the streets, and howled in the most lamentable and frantic manner. With a culture known for such outlandish mourning over the dead, the term tseaka gedola, or great cry, probably should be considered an understatement. Words would fail to describe the sounds emanating in the darkness of night in the land of Egypt. Verse 30 going on, For there was not a house where there was not one dead. If, as I suggested earlier, the only the firstborn son of the house was destroyed, then these words might be taken as hyperbole. Not every house would have a firstborn son, but every house with one would suffer the plague and have dead among them. But even in houses without a firstborn son, there still could have been firstborn animals. If someone had a favorite monkey that they idolized or a precious puppy that they loved, they too would have been afflicted by the plague even if it were less painful than a human child. And considering that everyone would know a house with a firstborn son, then everyone would personally have been touched by what occurred. The plague would have afflicted every person in the land, and the mourning sounds would have been beyond our ability to actually put into words. In one final mighty blow upon man and beast, the Lord came through Egypt the land. From the greatest even to the least, no family was exempt from his punishing hand. Except those who had applied the blood the precious blood of a lamb, innocent and pure. For those there was safety from the deathly flood. Behind the doors there were, they were safe and secure. Judgment has been rendered upon Egypt's sin, upon Pharaoh and all his subjects in the land. Their rebellions have finally done them in. No family was exempt from the Lord's punishing hand. Our second thought is, be gone! Verses 31 and 32. Verse 31, Then he called for Moses and Aaron by night. There is again argument and dissension among scholars what these words mean. Did Pharaoh call for Moses and Aaron to come before him? If so, then it would seem to violate what was said in chapter 10 with these words. Then Pharaoh said to him, get away from me. Take heed to yourself and see my face no more. For in the day you see my face, you shall die. So Moses said, you have spoken well. I will never see your face again. However, scholars attempt to argue that because of the urgency of the situation, he called for them to appear before him again. However, chapter 11 answers this, and it shows us that it is not the case. Moses, knowing in advance what would occur, said these parting words to Pharaoh, And all of these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, and all the people who follow you. So speculation is unnecessary. 
Pharaoh sent his messengers while he mourned over his dead. He was unwilling to personally go and beg for them to leave. Verse 31 going on and said, Rise, go out from among my people, both you and the children of Israel. Exactly as Moses said would come about, Pharaoh now fulfills. Not, he's imploring not only Moses and Aaron, but all of the people of Israel to leave. And he gives the reason for the order, finally realizing what he ignored throughout the entire period of the plagues. As verse 31 continues, And go, serve the Lord as you have said. This was the original request made in their very first meeting between these three people back in chapter 4. Let my son go, that he may serve me, but if you refuse to let him go, indeed I will kill your son, your firstborn. All of the pains, all of the destruction, all of the death, and all of the misery could have been avoided if Pharaoh had simply allowed Israel to go. And that's the same thing with the tribulation period that's coming on the world, because we've been told in advance that this is coming. God has given us his book, and he said this is coming on the world. And we're going to ignore that as a, as a species, as a race of people. And we're going to enter into that time where the world's going to destroy itself. Just like this hard-hearted guy here. When one does not know the true God, he is just another of many gods. Or maybe he's even considered a false god or no god at all. Unfortunately, when we don't recognize the creator, we cannot anticipate what he is capable of. Israel forgot their Lord and they were all but destroyed two times. The world has, like Egypt in these verses, all but forgotten the Lord, and the plagues of Egypt will come upon a global scale. When it is all said and done, there will be very little left. And all of this is because of a failure to serve the Lord, just as he has requested since the very beginning of time. Verse 32, And take, also take your flocks and your herds, as you have said, and be gone. Not only were they granted leave, but they have been granted absolute leave. Everything they possessed was to go with them, exactly as the Lord said in Exodus 11. I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt, he said. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will surely drive you out of here altogether. Not only is the word from Pharaoh a grant to go serve the Lord, it is a petition begging them to go, even directing them to go. His thoughts were so overwhelmed with the events of the past months and of what occurred that night that he could only long for them to be gone. But in their going, he looked for release from any further plagues by speaking the continuing words of verse 32. And bless me also. Uberechtem gam oti. And bless me also. The words are plural. You, plural, bless me also. Imagine the emotion of the man which would cause him to utter these words to his great foes. The last time they stood face to face, Pharaoh threatened their lives if they ever came before him again. And yet now, the broken man can only ask for a blessing. No other words could so exactingly show forth his complete submission to the Lord. In Genesis 47, verse 7, the first thing that Jacob, who is Israel, did when he came into the presence of Pharaoh was to bless him. In Genesis 47, verse 10, the last thing he did before leaving Pharaoh's presence was to again bless him. Now, 215 years later, the last thing that is requested of Pharaoh by Israel's representatives is a blessing. I'm sorry, it's requested by Pharaoh of Israel's representatives, and it is that he has requested a blessing. It is a very nice touch, tying the two stories together in a unique way. Jacob voluntarily blessed Pharaoh in the past. Pharaoh now begs for more. Bless me also, cried the people who wouldn't repent. Bless me also, cried those who persecuted the people of the Lord. Bless me also, they cried when the plague was sent. 
I know now that I should have paid heed to his word. Bless me also, cried the arrogant leader of the land. Bless me also, he cried, after leading in wickedness. Save me from any further punishment from God's hand. No more curses, please. Instead, I implore you to bless. How can we ignore the Lord every single day? How can we ignore him year after year? And then ask him to bless us when things don't go our way. We humans are incredibly dull, I do fear. Our third thought, the plundering of the Egyptians, verses 33 through 36. Verse 33, then the Egyptians urged the people that they might send them out of the land in haste. The word for urged here, this is so ironic that it's just astonishing. I never read any commentator comment on it, and yet it's the most astonishing and ironic word in the entire account. The word is chazak, the same word which has been used nine times already in the Exodus account in relation to Pharaoh. Eight of them were concerning the hardening of his heart. Chazak, it got hard. One of them was concerning his continued holding of them instead of letting them go. Now it is used concerning the Egyptians urging them to go. The irony in the use of this word is amazing. The same word which has been used concerning their continued bondage in Egypt is now being turned around as an urgent appeal to get them to leave immediately. And the reason for the urgency of their request is in the continued words of this verse. For they said, we shall all be dead. Kalanu metim, we all dead. The alarm at what had transpired was so great that they were certain their own death was at hand. As Benson notes, when death comes into our houses, it is seasonable for us to think of our own mortality. Having helped out in the mortuary in Japan when I was in the service, I can testify that this is true. When you're around the dead in an enclosed space, you will inevitably think of your own mortal state. In the case of the Egyptians, they could only think that the death would transfer to them as well. It was as if a sentence of death hung over their heads, calling to them because of the presence of the Israelites. They wanted Israel gone so that the sentence would be commuted. Verse 34, so the people took their dough before it was leavened. Because of the urgency of the moment, the dough that had been prepared for the exodus was not leavened when they left. And there's no contradiction in this and in the instructions found in the earlier verses of this chapter. There it said this, So this day shall be to you a memorial, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. For whoever eats leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. Those verses that I just read were in anticipation of the Exodus and were to be a memorial. There's no reason to think that the general populace knew of these instructions. They simply made bread day by day and they added the yeast in before they baked it. In the case of the Israelites on this night, as they waited to leave, they had no idea that they would nearly be forced out in a moment. The Lord knew what they didn't and he anticipated the annual ritual in advance of the actual circumstances which precipitated it. The dough, or the batsek, comes from the verb batsek, which means to swell. It implies that dough swells during fermentation. But in the case of this dough, it was not yet leavened, and it would not swell. Verse 34 continues, having their kneading bowls bound up in their clothes on their shoulders. As I said earlier, this is the second of only four times that this word, mishoret, or kneading trough, is mentioned in the Bible. The first was during the plague of frogs, where it said that the frogs went into the kneading troughs of the Egyptians. 
They were small, elongated wood or wicker troughs where dough was made. They were lightweight and they could easily be carried as described here. Wrapping them or anything else like this was a common way of carrying things. In parts of the world, it still is. This is what Ruth did when she left Boaz on the night of their meeting at the threshing floor. She used her shawl as a way of carrying the barley that he gave her to take home. When I lived in Japan, my wife did this for me every single day with my lunch. She'd wrap it in a large piece of cloth, usually on one of my bandanas maybe, and I'd carry it to work. Even 30 years later, my friends still bring that up, the people that I served with, because it was so cute. Here's Charlie with this little porcelain bowl and wrapped up in a bandana. If I were to look for a reason for the inclusion of this verse, which on its surface seems completely unnecessary to the account, it would be that it is also a picture of Christ. The lamb died in place of the firstborn. In Christ, he died in the place of the sinner. He is sinless just as the dough was unleavened. Sin results in death. Leaven results in corruption. He, being the sinless bread of life, is carried by the Lord's people in their exodus from the world of sin. Like Israel, who carried heavy burdens for the Egyptians, we carried a heavy burden in spiritual Egypt, but we carry a light one in Christ. He referred to this in the book of Matthew. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Verse 35, now the children of Israel had done according to the word of Moses, and they asked from the Egyptians articles of silver, articles of gold, and clothing. As was seen before in uh, reference to this particular verse, the King James Version blindly followed along behind the Geneva Bible, and they used the term borrowed instead of asked. And that is the most unfortunate of translations, which has led to all kinds of scandalous remarks concerning the Lord and the Lord's people. If they borrowed or if they were told to borrow and didn't intend to return, then they stole. Such is the nature of a mistranslation. It has led to many, many accusations being levied against the soundness of the account. The people asked and the Egyptians gave. The word for articles here can mean a whole host of things, from weapons and utensils to cups and plates. Articles of silver and gold and also garments are requested not to enrich the Israelites, but for what they are going to do with those things in the wilderness. They're heading out, and they're soon going to develop an organized mode of worship which will continue on until the coming of Jesus Christ. These articles are going to be used in the building of the temple. Every single detail of that temple pictures Jesus Christ. God is plundering the Egyptians in order to form worship for his people. Likewise, in Christ, God took from humanity in order to build his greater and eternal temple. He did it in that Christ came from the stream of humanity to be the true ark of that temple. And he has done it from his people who have become living stones in his temple, as it says in the, uh, Peter's epistle. Every detail is given to show us hints of the glory to come in Jesus Christ. Verse 36, and the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they granted them what they requested. All of Egypt would have been aware of the plight of the Israelites, and they would have known that the Lord had judged Egypt because of them. They would look on Israel with fear, yes, but they would also look on them with a sense of realizing the wrongs that had been committed against them. As Matthew Henry says about this, thus the Lord took care that their hard-earned wages should be paid. 
and the people provided for their journey. Today, people continue to send money to Jewish causes and for the return of those who want to make the move back to the land of Israel. They do it because they perceive the injustices that have been committed against them in the past. If each person in Egypt gave a single gold ring, a single silver cup, and one nice garment, it would come out to an immense amount, considering the number which is recorded as departing. If one person decides that they will no longer support Starbucks or Disney World because they don't want to support the gay agenda, it may only mean a $100 loss to them. But if all Christians were united in this effort, it would deprive them of hundreds of millions and possibly billions of dollars every year. Such is the nature of accumulated wealth. When the tabernacle is to be built, Moses will ask the people for donations for the effort. However, after just a little while of asking for donations, we're going to read this. Then all the craftsmen who were doing all the work of the sanctuary came, each from the work he was doing, and they spoke to Moses saying, The people bring much more than enough for the service of the work which the Lord commanded us to do. So Moses gave a commandment, and they caused it to be proclaimed throughout the camp, saying, Let neither man nor woman do any more work for the offering of the sanctuary. And the people were restrained from bringing, for the material that they had was sufficient for all the work to be done. Indeed, too much. In the end, the extraordinary amount carried out collectively was individually a moderate repayment for many hard years of service and a just recompense for harsh injustices against them. And we finish with these words, thus they plundered the Egyptians. Each individual Egyptian was glad to have helped out in a small way, but the Egyptian economy as a whole was severely harmed in a very big way. It's like the common adage, I went broke saving money. When you go out and you buy a bunch of small things that are on sale, eventually you spend all your money. Egypt was plundered one small donation at a time. The pulpit commentary provides us with a graphic explanation of the sight of Israel ready to depart. They say, the result was that the Israelites went forth not as slaves, but as conquerors, decked with the jewels of the Egyptians as though they had conquered and despoiled them. Everything about this final plague on Egypt speaks of the work of Christ. In the greatest sense, God judged the world's sin through his own firstborn. There is a price for redeeming. In Egypt, it was with the firstborn of the people of the land or with an innocent lamb. In the world we live in, it can only be from the firstborn of God, who is also the Lamb of God. Every picture of the past goes both ways, and in both ways they point to Christ. It is all about him. Imagine that. We have been purchased by the very creator of all things through the most precious life, Jesus Christ. How can we turn away from such a great salvation? How could we escape God's wrath if we did? Nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus Christ can wash away our sin. If you've never called out to him for healing and for restoration, please do so today. And let me give, just in case somebody is here that's never called out to Jesus or somebody's watching on YouTube and they need to know how to be saved, all they have to do is just say, Jesus, I know I can't save myself. I know that I need you as my Savior and that you will take away my sin. Just call on the name of the Lord and you will be saved. It's that simple. But it's that difficult, too, because it's saying that I can't do everything myself, and humans want to do everything themselves. But Jesus Christ did what we cannot do for ourselves. He washes away the sin debt that we owe in the presence of a holy God. And then God, when he sees us, he doesn't see us at all. He sees us through his son, Jesus Christ, perfect and spotless. And for all eternity, we'll be that way because of the work of another, the very creator himself. Our closing verse today, happier than our 
text verse. It's from Deuteronomy 28 as well. It's the fifth verse. It says, blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Good words from a great God. Next week is Exodus 12. It's 37 through 51. The shouts of triumph will be joyous. It's entitled the Exodus, our 36 Exodus sermon. And I'll tell you this, we're getting closer to the parting of the Red Sea. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. Even if a deep ocean lies ahead of you, he can part the waters and he can lead you through it on dry ground. So follow him and trust him and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. And I got a poem today called The Plague of the Firstborn. And it came to pass at midnight that the Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, showing his might and how the land did mourn. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat upon his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of livestock, man and beast did moan. So Pharaoh rose in the night from his spot, he and all his servants and all the people of Egypt. And there was a great cry in Egypt for there was not a house where the life of one wasn't stripped. Then he called for Moses and Aaron by night and said, rise and out from my, among my people go, both you and the children of Israel and go serve the Lord as you have said. Yes, even so. Also take your flocks and your herds as you have said and be gone and bless me also now that my son is dead. And the Egyptians urged the people that they might send them out of the land in haste. For they said, we shall all be dead. Hurry, there is no time to waste. So the people took their dough before to it they could leaven impose, having their kneading bowls, as we know, bound on their shoulders in their clothes. Now the children of Israel had done as tasked according to the word of Moses he did tell. And they from the Egyptians had asked articles of silver, articles of gold and clothing as well. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the people of Egypt so that they granted them what they requested. Thus plundered the Egyptians, their wealth was stripped. With this final plague, Israel is ready to leave. After many years of hard bondage, the time is spent. And while the people of Egypt moan and grieve, Israel will take part in the great Exodus event. And each of us has called, who has called upon the Lord has likewise been brought out from hard bondage too. When we heard the message of Jesus, the spoken word, he revived our spirit. In him we have been created anew. Wonderful stories of times gone by, and yet they are relevant to the lives of each one of us. And so with our voices to him, let us shout aloud and cry, all hail the glorious name, the exalted name of Jesus. Thank you for the new life you have granted to us. Thank you, O God, for our Lord, our Savior, our precious Jesus. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you so very much for the wonderful, wonderful stories you've given us and for the choice that you've granted us that we can be just like Pharaoh. We can ignore you and we can suffer our own judgment in this life and in the next, or we can bow our knee to the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings, your son, our Lord Jesus, and we can be saved from the wrath to come. And what an opportunity it is that you've given us because every one of us has fallen short of your standards and instead of the wrath we do deserve, you're giving us that chance, that wonderful opportunity. I long personally to walk on the streets of gold in your glorious light with the redeemed of the ages and to speak to them for all eternity about the wonders and the marvels of Jesus, all he's done for us from the very beginning of creation all the way through until the ages of ages. How great you are, O oh God. And with the several, five, six, seven, seven people I think that are traveling right now, Lord, we would pray that you would keep them safe, 
bring them back uh, safely next week and uh, or when their vacation ends. And uh, for the people that are here, I would ask that you would bless them in the week ahead and uh, just help us to uh, remember to get on our knees and to pray to you each day, thanking you for the many blessings you've given us and to jump up on our feet and shout praises to you for the things we have received. You're so good to us. Help us to remember that every step that we take, that you are so good to us. We love you. We praise you. We exalt you. In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus, amen. We come to the Lord's table, remembering what Jesus Christ did for us when he uh, went to the cross of Calvary. And that's the purpose of the Lord's table, is to remember his death until he comes. As Paul writes uh, in his instructions to us from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He said, For I received from the Lord that which I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And he would have given thanks over this. He would have said, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam hamotzi lechem min haaretz. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. And he broke it and he said, Take and eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper. And he would have blessed us as well. He would have said, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu, Melech haolam borei peri hagafen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings who, creator of the fruit of the vine. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost. As it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for the table that we come to each week. Thank you that we have that opportunity. I pray for the Christians in the world that don't have that opportunity, that are being persecuted, that are being kept away from their ability to worship you freely. And that may come to us soon, but for now... We rejoice in the fact that we can remember this as a, a fellowship of believers coming together to uh, worship you. We thank you for that. We love you. We praise you. We exalt you. And we do so in the name of your beautiful Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. <clears throat>